Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. We are back with episode 34 of Discovering the Old Testament. I want to take a moment to thank our listeners for your support and encourage those of you who find these podcasts useful to support us with a donation. You can make a donation on our website, lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. This installment will cover a very important piece of Isaiah, perhaps one of the most famous of all his oracles, and that is the set of passages found in chapters 52 and 53 regarding a mysterious figure scholars have come to call the Suffering Servant. This is one of several servant songs in Isaiah. This is a genre of poetry that is found exclusively in Isaiah, which has four known examples, including our present text. In order to get a better handle on the most famous of these songs, let's look at the genre as a whole. The first servant song appears in chapter 42. It is also the first time that Isaiah uses the word servant to refer to Israel as a whole. In the broadest sense, anyone who does the will of God is a servant of God. The term in Hebrew, ebed, has multiple nuances that are important here. First, it means that the servant has responsibility for the security or well-being of something or someone. A good example would be the servant of Abraham in Genesis 24, who is tasked with the responsibility of finding a suitable wife for Isaac. It implies honor, trust, and protection granted to the servant who stands under the protection of someone else as a subordinate who determines the manner of that service. The word also has the meaning of slave, but this need not be restricted to the word's more negative connotation. Some scholars suggest that a better rendition would be comparable to a knight, meaning one who is a servant, but also a person of privilege. As before, the servant of Abraham is a good example. Generally speaking, the word ebed describes the relationship between a weaker party and a stronger party in a covenant. The weaker was entitled to protection and enjoyed a special bond with the stronger party. The worshippers of God were referred to as servants. We see this usage across the ancient Near East, both in and out of the Israelite lands, as well as in many parts of the Bible, referring to prophets, kings, and so on, who refer to themselves as an ebed of God. Now let's look at one of the servant songs in particular. A servant song is a statement regarding some kind of servant figure to whom God has given a commission of some kind. It is a nominally impossible assignment, something that the servant can only accomplish with the support and assistance of God. In each of these poems, God calls the servant to lead the nations, but the servant is horribly abused. The servant sacrifices himself, accepting the punishment because of the acts of others. In the end, he is rewarded. 
This is very different from the songs of lamentation that we find in other prophetic books, such as Jeremiah, where the prophet is basically complaining about his treatment. In the servant songs, the servant accepts the abuse without a peep of complaint. In the larger context of religious literature of the times, the servant songs are quite remarkable. In the ancient Near East, the mistreatment of the servant of any other god would be taken as irrefutable evidence that said god was on the side of the servant's enemies. Jeremiah's laments are best understood in this light. As far as his opponents would be concerned, the case is already decided, and the servant has lost. He admits defeat by accepting the blows and abuse heaped upon him. This makes any assertions that God is on the side of the servant all the more remarkable. In fact, in the third suffering servant song found in chapter 50, the servant actually challenges those who oppress him to a court case, where he will prove that God really is on his side. After describing the physical and public abuse from others, he insists, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will then bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. The task of the servant is to bring forth justice to the nations, bring forth justice in truth, and continue until he establishes justice in the earth. We can say what this song says with confidence. What it means, however, is another matter. You will notice that the word justice shows up a lot, so let's look up that as well, because it's critical to our understanding of the servant's songs. Justice is rendered using the Hebrew word mishpat, rather than tzedakah. Uh, some translators like the idea of truth as a rendering, but I'm less sure of this. Mishpat in the Torah has a technical meaning of case law, as opposed to established statutes. Mishpat also shows up in Deutero-Isaiah trial speeches later on, which to me suggests that judgment, or case law, is a better rendition in the sense of an ongoing, robust, and fair judicial system. What is interesting is that our servant is to establish justice, but in a very understated way. It's counterintuitive, even contradictory, given the usual expectation of an activist rabble-rouser that typifies the usual Old Testament prophet. We now come to the fourth servant song, The Suffering Servant. Many readers start at the beginning of chapter 53, but in fact it begins in the last three verses of chapter 52. See, my servant shall prosper, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of mortals, so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall contemplate. 
These verses are important because they describe the exaltation of the servant before he is humiliated. It makes the humiliation of the servant just that much more remarkable. The humiliation evokes surprise and confusion from the bystanders who see it, but this astonishment is not due to a lack of understanding. Quite the contrary, they understand perfectly what is going on. This section, from 52 verse 13 through the end of chapter 53, is one of the most important and at the same time the most perplexing portions of Isaiah. Of course, its importance to Christianity can hardly be overstated, even though it must be said that the interpretation of this as a reference to the future suffering of Christ is only one of many. then was this mysterious servant. A common answer apart from the Christian interpretation is that the servant represents the nation of Israel. In this case, the servant is initially exalted but is subjected to a hideous change of fortune, but patiently endures it as part of God's will, and eventually is returned to a place of comfort and glory. This has been a consistent Jewish interpretation for centuries, as this passage from the Talmud makes clear in a direct reference to our text, quote, If the Holy One, blessed be he, is pleased with Israel or man, he crushes him with painful sufferings. For it is said, And the Lord was pleased with him, hence he crushed him by disease. Now you might think that this is so, even if he did not accept them with love, Therefore it is said to see if his soul would offer itself in restitution. Even as the trespass offering must be brought by consent, so the sufferings must be endured with consent. And if he did accept him, what is his reward? He will see his seed, prolong his days, and, more than that, his knowledge of the Torah will endure with him. For it is said, the purpose of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It has been taught by Rabbi Simeon ben Yohai, the Holy One, blessed be he, gave Israel three precious gifts, and all of them were given only through suffering. These are the Torah, the land of Israel, and the world to come. Close quote. This idea is definitely consistent with the history of Israel, especially through the historical period covered by the book of Isaiah. Israel's proud place as one kingdom among other kingdoms was brought down not only by Nebuchadnezzar, but prior to that by the Assyrian king Sennacherib, following his unsuccessful siege of Jerusalem. Earlier portions of Isaiah castigated the Jews for celebrating as a victory what was clearly a severe defeat. Most authors place our text during the exile, or very close to it, so there is that aspect of suffering as well, even though, to be quite frank, the Jews were not abused during their time in Babylon, and in fact did pretty well in their new home. 
The later vindication, while still in the future, is a major theme in the last half of Isaiah, so it's not surprising that we should find it here. But there is a linguistic point that argues strongly against the idea that the servant is Israel or Judah. The confession that makes up this song is written in the first-person plural, as in, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Biblical scholar Brevard Childs points out that when one sees the first-person plural used in the contexts of confession, the confessing we is always Israel, not the nations. This makes it difficult to posit that the suffering servant is Israel. They cannot be both the external observer and the servant. My personal take is that this is a very important point. The Bible's use of words is more consistent than is often appreciated, but it would be bad scholarship to also ignore other passages, such as Isaiah 41.8, which reads, You are my servant, O Israel, or 49 verse 3, which says roughly the same thing. There are plenty of other such references to Israel as God's servant, and the servant song genre makes clear that the servant in question is a servant of God. There are no other groups or nations that are viable candidates for the identity of the servant, so if the identity of the servant as Israel is not satisfactory, one must look to individuals. But before we go there, we need to address another aspect of this mysterious figure that has prompted a great deal of discussion, and that is the matter of his being a sacrifice and the idea of vicarious suffering. Consider verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed and even more significantly in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. It's very easy to see how Christians would come to view this as a direct reference to the sacrifice of Christ. The problem is that the idea of vicarious suffering, in which one person could take on the punishment for someone else's sins, simply did not exist in Jewish law. In early Israelite religion, as we find it in the Bible, we don't even see a fully formed idea of repentance as it was later understood. In the earliest texts, if a people did wrong, a prophet could intercede on their behalf with God in order to reduce or end his punishment against them. But the idea of individual repentance does not really show up until much later. This kind of intercession is about as close as one gets to a mechanism by which one person can address the sins of another, but it in no wise constitutes actually accepting the punishment for those sins. The sacrificial institutions of ancient Israel held that sacrifices for sin were not the primary means by which someone was absolved of wrongdoing. The clear doctrine was that one could not offer a sin offering until one had repented, made restitution where possible, and reconciled themselves with whomever had been wronged. Only then would the sacrifice have any effect, and that effect was more about communicating to God that the task of repentance was complete. 
at which point they would receive forgiveness. Sin offerings certainly did not expiate intentional sins, from which there had been no repentance. Even the idea of the scapegoat found in Leviticus 16 does not really answer this problem. This was an annual ritual in which two goats were used, one sacrificed as a purification offering, and the other sent into the wilderness after the sins of Israel were ritually placed upon it. The point of this exercise was not to expiate the sins, but to send them ritually away from the camp to some distant location. The goat was not harmed or killed, only sent out of the confines of the community. The idea that the servant represents a messianic figure is also problematic, since at this point in time the full-blown concept of a messiah, as we find it in the New Testament, had not yet developed. This really wouldn't happen until the intertestamental period, which started around 200 BCE. A messiah was still a word applied to someone who had been set apart for an important task by anointing them with oil. Messiah was more of an adjective than a noun. First Isaiah does make reference to a figure or figures that would restore the kingship to its proper practice and ethics. However, rabbinic commentators in the intertestamental period and thereafter often did take this passage to refer to the Messiah. They simply rejected the notion that Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah. To make matters even messier, unlike first Isaiah, second Isaiah does not apparently believe in a great reformer or other such figure that might be construed as a messianic figure. Other theories point to the self-description of the prophet Jeremiah and his well-documented sufferings. Even though 53 states that the servant opened not his mouth, and Jeremiah certainly was not shy about recording his sufferings, at least in writing, at least one famous ancient Jewish scholar, Sadia Gaon, concluded that the suffering servant referred to Jeremiah, who suffered because of Israel's sins, more out of pathos or grief than any form of sacrificial expiation. Other scholars, both ancient and modern, proposed Moses as the identity of the servant. Another passage in the Talmud makes this association as well. Now, by this point, you might be waiting for me to hand down some brilliant conclusion about who this mysterious figure was. Unfortunately, this is one of those many instances in the scholarship of the ancient world that leaves us with no clear conclusion. Our text lends itself to a number of views and interpretations. It forces us to wrestle with questions of sin, guilt, and punishment from which we must forge our own notions of justice. This text is highly allegorical and allusive. Ironically, that is both the weakness of the Fourth Service Song and its strength. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. 
Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.